0: Take their soul to the next level, and I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes, between sixty and ninety minutes, covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best-selling authors. Legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So, if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul master classes, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, today on the show, we have a doctor that sees dead people every single day, but not in the way that you're thinking. We have on the show Dr. Christopher Kerr, and he's the author of the book Death is But a Dream based on his extensive research with hospice patients and their families in Buffalo, New York, and highlights and validates the powerful dreams and visions often experienced at the end of life that bring comfort and meaning to the dying process. Christopher and I had a wonderful conversation, and I really hope it touches your heart. So, let's dive in. I'd like to welcome... To the show, Christopher Kerr. How you doing, Doctor Chris? I'm good, doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, we're gonna talk today about something that's pretty, I think, something that we're all gonna have to go through at one point or another. Yeah, <laughs> unavoidable. <laughs> exactly. And I've had a lot of people on the show uh, who've had near-death experiences. I've had doctors who had shared death experiences. Uh, but your research is really interesting, and really wanted to kind of touch upon that in the show. Uh, But my first question is, how did you become, or why did you want to become a hospice doctor? Uh,
1: I didn't. Um, (laughs) I wish I could tell you there was some great uh, inspiration or aspiration, but it was this simple. I was here um, to do a fellowship in cardiology after I'd done residency, Mm -hmm. and I was needing to moonlight. And I saw a dad in the paper asking for uh, a doctor to work weekends, and um, I needed money. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I, uh, I, uh, I started working here part time. And I was into this work very short period of time, and I realized this was the most meaningful stuff I'd ever done.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, I went back to my cardiology department and said, you know, I want to leave cardiology and pursue this. And they actually, they actually asked me if I needed to see a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> because cardiology then it is a pretty lucrative end of medicine, and uh, hospice at that time was largely populated by volunteer doctors at the end of their career. So uh, interesting,
0: interesting. Yeah. it's yeah. funny. It's funny how the universe works.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it though I've never looked back. That's- Periodically, my daughter will find one of those solicitation postcards that says, Come make a million dollars and work three days a week, and she'll pull it out of the garbage and say, It's not too late.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, can you discuss a little bit about the research you've been doing over the years, uh, being a hospice doctor?
1: Sure, I, you know, I, I came here to this work pretty unprepared from my training, and um. I wasn't here very long and I was learning from my non-physician colleagues, nurses, social work, pastoral care folks, that patients at the end of life, um, there was a very subjective side to it. There's the experiential side. So there's there's kind of what we see, um, which is physical lessening and so often suffering and what we feel, which is sadness. But the patient is having their own experiences. Um, dying is a singularly unique vantage point that... Uh, inherently changes your perspectives um, and your perceptions. So I, when you look beyond the veil of the obvious, which is uh, again this physical debility of, and, and, and symptomology, and started asking people what they were experiencing, you find out there's another there's another thing happening. And what I learned from my non-physician colleagues was that it was very common for people at the end of their life to have very intense dream, vision, experiences. Um, Dying is essentially progressive sleep. So you're in and out of sleep states, um, kind of got a foot in two worlds. And people who even don't normally dream were reporting these very vivid experiences. And what impressed me um, was how profoundly comforting they were. And they gave such meaning. And kind of what happened was I was trying to teach this to medical residents and 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 students. And the response I got was, well, there's no real evidence for this. And they kind of put it in a bucket of confusion and whatever. And it really frustrated me because it clearly had meaning to the patient and their loved ones. Right. So originally I did the research um, uh, just to give it validity. So we, this is a university moderate research project. We had to rule out confusion um, make sure people were cognitively intact, aware, all those things, had to sign consents, and we started interviewing them. And uh, knowing that seeing is believing, we also started filming them. You know, shoot ahead 20 years, and, you know, we published, I don't know, seven, eight papers on it, uh, a book, uh, a PBS documentary, and we were part of a Netflix docu- series. And what's fascinating is there was very little response in the medical world but the non-medical world it's gone around and around the world
0: can I, can I ask you why is it that the medical establishment just doesn't want to listen to anything that's outside their box then that goes for so many different things whether it could be you know natural remedies that might have uh, some help like you know just even chinese medicine from 3000 years ago or or other things that are outside of their box and this is another obviously box that's outside of what they're normally, why is the establishment so rigid?
1: There there are a couple of reasons. One is this wasn't true a hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the more medicines being able to do, the scientific uh, revolution essentially from antibiotics to imaging to interventions has self-amused the physician to uh, really become death-defying and death-denying um they feel
0: they they feel that they feel they can do anything there it's almost like it's almost it's almost a slight god complex in a sense well
1: well no what i think what's happened is so so the oath in medicine is to cure where possible but to comfort always Hmm. and i think we've clung to the one and not the other and it's how we educate and how we train and then you add to it that we become spot welders. So you get sick and you can <laughs> see a buffet of six doctors. So everyone's there. It's very organ system based. Our, even our economics of healthcare are organ system based. So we do things to parts and lose sight of the whole. So it's not uncommon for us to have patients who by multiple, by every measure constitutionally are dying. I'll give you an example person with cancer hasn't eaten in three weeks they're dying they do the imaging and the imaging might show show disease uh, progression but it's really the burden of the disease over the time and frailty that come into play so they'll it's not uncommon to see physicians prognosticating off of a scan that doesn't consider that looking at an organ but doesn't consider the body that the organs in Mm. or the patient's wishes (laughs) right it's almost irrelevant Yeah, it, it becomes <laughs> ir- irrelevant. So we've lost our ability to look at the totality—not only the person, um, what's happening, ha- happening to them in the fullest sense, but what, what considerations. Some people are just tired. It's a lot of energy to be uh, to fight illness, and you're 88. You can't get up anymore. You know, it's easier not to do than to do. Um, so if we treat numbers and treat pictures and treat parts. You can miss the forest for the trees.
0: That makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Now, you discussed visions and dreams. Is there a distinction, you know, in between the two? Yeah, and both are inaccurate, actually. It's the only nomenclature
1: we have. Um, So so we've done this with now 1,500 patients and families. And in our first study, we did interviews of them daily, surveys of them daily until death. So this is several weeks and months before death. And not the last moments when people are clearly often confused um, or deoxygenated. And, and, and what they will tell you is, yeah, I don't normally dream.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: Um, this was different when we asked we ask them to scale the realism of it. It's usually ten out of ten. They're virtual, like they've been lived. Um, they um, come out with a sense that um, they were it, it happened, and of course, they're thematically the content is not random. You know, overwhelmingly, it's um, about people who they, they they've loved and lost. So we looked at this as people. What changes occurred as people who got closer to death? And what happened is they stopped dreaming. Of everyday events and started experiencing um, people who were most important to them. And time didn't seem to matter. So they could have lost a parent eight decades ago, but they were tangible to them. Very little said. There's a lot of difference between what I understand about near death experiences and these events. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a trial run. Uh, mm-hmm. These people are actually dying. Very little is said. They don't need a lot of interpretation. They're not looking for metaphor. They're just given an understanding. And the predominant themes are themes of love. Um, The people who condition their love are often removed. So it could be one parent present and uh, not another. Um, Whatever injury you had, um, that could be you lost a child. Um, That comes back to you. We've had many veterans who had survivor's guilt. That gets addressed. We've all been harmed in one way or another for having lived, and we seem to get put back together through these experiences. And so um, the life you led gets kind of validated. And um, in, inversely, the fear of death seems to lessen. And when we ask them to measure comfort from these experiences, whether they're comforting, discomforting, either, the actual comfort level goes up. So as, the, as they approach death, So there's an increase in frequency, intensity, and the comfort given.
0: Now, you say most. Are there any negative experiences, like having nightmares or, you know, just horror, but like not good?
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, we were pretty naive because we measured comforting, not neither, whatever. And about 16% of people have a non-comforting experience. But it's really interesting Is those are often the most transformational or meaningful. And, and some of this is captured on film, which is really mm-hmm. wonderful to see. So I'll give you an example. We had a guy who was in his forties who had spent most of his life in and out of pr- in prison, more in prison than out. He had um, uh, drug addictions and he had head and neck cancer and he was dreaming. And then we caught this on film by accident, really. We we're just, interviewing for another topic and he's joking he was very jovial he's one of these guys who couldn't afford to live with regret or look backwards and then he starts crying because he's having these horrible dreams he's being stabbed by all the people he's hurt at of sight of his cancer and he breaks down but then when he comes out of it he asks to see a daughter that he wanted to express his love towards and apologize and after that he slept so there these dreams don't deny Life. Um, We had a mother whose worth was questioned uh, because two of her kids were in prison for drug-related offenses. And in her end of life, she's back in her home in Puerto Rico, and her parents come to her and tell her what a good mother and what a good person she was. So, uh, again, they're not denying that bad things and painful things transpire, but they address them and soothe them in a way that's very interesting.
0: So it's not like if you have a negative experience, quote unquote negative experience, it's not there to punish you. It's there to guide you into a positive scenario, like that example you gave with um, the, uh, the the forty-year-old who had that horrible dream, but then that prompted him to make You're amends, so cool. make amends yeah. in a positive thing. And once he was able to release that, Thanks he slap. then. Then he slept. Yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't. You haven't had any. uh, In your research, you haven't found any like punishing. Like I'm just getting beaten with these bad dreams for no reason.
1: No. I. I, We have. um, I talk about the most powerful one in my TED talk. The where a guy. Um, he had been involved in the invasion of Normandy at the age of sixteen or seventeen. Oh Jesus. And his whole life had been he'd been suffered with PTSD and he never got help um and uh he kept it all to himself his wife knew because he'd scream in the night and so he came into our unit at the end of his life because he was having such horrific experiences where he's seen body parts and bloody water and screams and he couldn't rest you can't you can't die really unless you can sleep it's pretty hard to do because you have to pass in sleep so he couldn't sleep and then one day going to see him and um, he's, uh, he slept. And I said, well, what would you dream about? He was in our study. He goes, well, I had a great dream, he said, where um, um, I relived the best day of my life, which was the day he got his discharge papers. And he said, and I had a really good dream. He said, I was on a beach, presumably Normandy, and a soldier who he didn't know um, came up to him and said now we're going to come get you um so that sense of that he abandoned people um, had kind of gone full circle and uh he slept peacefully after that and he died peacefully
0: so it Uh, seems it seems that these dreams and and or visions are are helping the process along And, and 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 in many ways a blessing for people who can go through this process because it's kind of like a, it's a longer uh, longer runway to the end of, of life as opposed to someone who just gets shocked or gets killed instantly or something along those lines or has a heart attack or something like that. They're kind of preparing and they're like working out business, if you will, that they've yeah. had in life. Yeah,
1: exactly. And we actually did a really interesting study where we, this whole notion, first of all, that 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 you, they're, you're passive to the process or that there's nothing to be learned from a negative experience. This isn't true. So we took dying, and there's actually an inventory to measure something called post-traumatic tra- post tra- um, growth. So the idea, for example, you go into war, and we all the negatives are obvious, but is there is there positive um, elements to it? And that's what we found in dying. So people who were who are dying, who were having these experiences when compared to people who weren't, we're um we're adapting we're learning we're gaining insight and it was measurable right up until the very end um so yeah there's this other side to it um basically because you're dying doesn't mean you've stopped living and you do intense living in that latter period it kind of makes sense you know, You go you knew you were dying you, you, your worries and focus and concerns are on affairs and other people and your own mortality but as you actually get close to it you're looking back on the life you've lived and you're extracting from it the things that come to surface are are actually overwhelmingly positive and affirm firm life um, rather than deny it they don't deny death that's what's really interesting nobody they don't come out of these experiences, so you're you're not dying. You're you're dying, but you're doing so with a better sense of meaning.
0: Did you did you find that most, if not all of the of the patients that you uh, you researched or studied, uh, f- had a less fear of death? Yes. Yeah. And, nobody and- nobody became more fearful or or, or went in. You know, no terrified. we didn't
1: we didn't measure fear per se that's actually interesting you're asking that's what we're in a study doing now how mm-hmm. does it change their kind of existential view mm-hmm. um, what was expressed to us and it, it was quite the opposite and and this is what's so po- powerful about the patient videos um for your audience to see them because they w- what comes out in abundance is they're not fighting the dying of the light stuff. They're actually trying to get towards, not away from. So um, there's a great lady in the video who had lost her daughter and her husband. And, you know, days before death, she's just sitting around the kitchen table. Nobody's talking, but she feels them. And it gave her a sense of warmth that was beyond description. And, you know, that's what she wanted to return to.
0: Now with that said I mean like I said uh, at the beginning of our conversation I've spoken to a lot of near death experiencers and 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 doctors and and loved ones who've gone through shared death experiences did you in your studies and research find any any of these dreams were aligned with what is considered a near death experience or like those kind of story elements or tropes of near-death experiences, you know, the tunnel of light, seeing your relatives there, I'm coming to take you. Are these kind of things, did you see any of this in your research? No, not a single one. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: I've doing this for, I'm doing this for 23 years.
0: Right. 24 years. So it's, act, it's a, so it's a different phase, a different Yeah, phase. you know,
1: and it, it just makes sense. I mean, it, people who have near-death experiences, again, I, I I just have a layperson's understanding of it, right? They, they seem to almost be structurally changed. The, the, Completely. They, yeah. they, they, they come back with a different um, view. They see the world through different lens. They often feel compelled to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Often compelled to write a book, um, it, it, it you know they become prophets, uh, and, and and I mean they're really powerfully moved by whatever it is they had. I never had that, no, never saw it. And, it's just a it's, different, yeah. It's just a different time. You think, you think about it. The time for therapy is over. The time for adaptive change is over. Um, they, they they don't. I've never seen the patient come up, wake from these experiences, say, hey, what do you think this means? They just are left with a sense of knowing, a sense of love, of being put back together, of reacquainted with their loved one. What have you? They don't. Um, they don't come back with regret. I got to change this. What is my therapist going to think? None of that. Uh,
0: Never seen it, right? Because it's just a different thing. Because a, a near death experience is something that happens suddenly, and and you know, according to near deathers, they go somewhere and then they come back. Whereas what you're going, end of life, it's, it's the, 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 road is set. There's no, there's no dry,
1: there's no dry run. There's no rehearsal.
0: The no. trajectory
1: is completely different. Um, they've gone through a period of of accepting their mortality, the finality of their life um, where, you know, you hear from a lot of near death, it was sudden. And, right. Right. Um, you know, they didn't have time to process. So it makes sense to me at some level. Um, mm-hmm. that they're different. I just always bother when they're coupled because they're different. And as for shared experiences, um, you know, I, I I certainly know people who document these things as somebody who actually takes care of dying people. I, I don't, I don't see it.
0: Have you um, been in the, have you been in the room with many of, of, of your patients have passed?
1: Literally thousands. Really? I mean, it's all I do. Right. right. Since 1999.
0: No, I'm I'm a layman as well, so I don't know what the yeah, process no, is. I, like, I, like I, are you in the room or are you the family oh, in the room? Oh,
1: oh, oh, yeah, very. We we have an inpatient unit here, so we take care of about 1,200 people a day. But we've got an inpatient where there's 22 beds, literally across the hall from me, and I worked there for decades. So I'm rounding on patients every day, and of course the the patients are always changing. So it's a lot of patients over a lot of years.
0: Let me ask you: How do you handle this psychologically? Uh, You seeing death day in day out over two decades. I mean, you know, I've been around. You know, when my grandparents passed and relatives have passed, and it 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 hits. I mean, obviously, I have a I'm obviously a more emotional connection to them because they're my relatives. But how do you handle it psychologically? To see, I'm assuming you connect, and you're even more connected than most hospice doctors because you're asking questions you're documenting you're really getting deep in in connections with these people how do you handle the loss day in and day out you know it
1: it, it's not what you'd think Mm -hmm. Um, if you're on if i was hearing this on the outside you think we must be the most depressed people in the world or the best depressing Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually the opposite it's you'd find the place oddly uplifted Full of humor. Um, And uh, there's undeniable sadness, particularly in unfinished lives. You know, a young parent leaving choice. And and we care for 135 kids a day. But, you know, we're also enormously privileged um, to witness, participate in, in the care of patients along with their loved ones. And what we see on the caregiving side is the best of our nature. We see people um, finding courage to care for their loved one in ways they couldn't imagine, um, express kindness. Um, it, 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 it's heroic um, what we see people, um, you know, we, we, we think of caregiving in terms of burden, but we actually see is, is remarkable. People's lives who are stopped and overwhelmed by responsibility not easy, and what we hear and see, it's the best, hardest thing they've ever done. Um, it can be both those things. So we see grace, um, we see remarkable love in the face of loss. Um, so you come out of these experiences. The sadness is undeniable, but it's also um inspiring, and to be a part of it in any way is a privilege. So, and we are fortunate in hospice because we're not a volume based fee for service business. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so much of healthcare is demoralizing because you take people with good impulse and instinct to go into medicine and then you put them on assembly line where you get 15 minutes with a patient kind of thing.
0: 15? That's a lot.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we, the expectation for us is we sit and we get to know the patients as people. And the mandate in hospice, the unit of care in hospice is the patient and their loved ones. That's why the framers uh, of the benefit give 13 months of bereavement for, we may have the patient for a week, but we get to care for their family for 13 months. Really? So we, we And we're doing most of our work in their home. So you're seeing them in the context of their lives, how they live. Um, you see pictures of them when they were 50 years ago when they were young and vibrant so you get to know them differently you know their pets um so it's just if you were to do this in a typical medical environment it, it would rip you apart um but when you actually get to know them as humans it becomes more human to you um and it's, it's special in, in, a, in, a, in very unique ways. It's a privilege to, to do this in medicine.
0: Now, you mentioned children. Is the experience, the, first of all, did you have any children in your research? And if you did, how do the experiences differ from adult to children if they do?
1: Oh, enormously. Yeah. So we have one of the largest pediatric programs in the country um and it's a chapter in the book we have published a paper on it it's in both the pbs documentary and it's in the netflix series they're in them and so yeah we've done a lot of work with kids and kids do this entirely differently um they don't have uh they may not necessarily have a concept of finality or of even mortality um they uh they live in the day um but they and they may not have known someone who's died, so who comes for them, kind of thing, right? Right. Um, and they what often happens is they may not, in our in our, in our in these are the cases we wrote about, is they didn't know a person, um, but they knew animals, and pets, and it may not be their pet, um, but it might be a neighbor's or grandparents. And children make little distinction between animal qualities they ascribe to humans and animals so it all kind of blurs right and but they come back to them with the same message that they're loved and not alone and that's verbatim the language they used in um in in two of the uh, features on the film and the other young lady um because children are creative and imaginative and can access that part of them um, she created a castle for herself so there was a castle around her. There was a swimming pool. The animals were returned. There was a piano. There was a window with warm light coming through. So she gave it sensory feel, you know. And when asked um, what does the castle represent, she said a safe place. So mm-hmm. it was like she used the they used their creative and imaginable world to 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 give them some some sort of solace. Um, another woman, another child you know, um, was the child of a single mom. And so who was she, how does she exist without her parent? And um, then she dreams of seeing her mom's deceased friend in her mother's room, adjusting the curtains. Um, Again, she's not alone and she's reassured. Um, So these experiences for children become very self informing. They seem to understand intuitively that something's happening to them. Um, but they're secured, and they're loved.
0: It seems that the theme, uh, one of the themes that I keep hearing from your, from what you're saying, is that uh, you're loved, and that you're in a, you're going to a safe place, and that seems to be a recurring theme in many of the the, the people that you've uh, yeah re- very, studied. very much so yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So so let me, so I have to ask you now as a physician, you know, you look at life. I mean, as physicians are trained to look at life very scientifically, but yet I've spoken to other hospice uh, workers and there is a spiritual aspect to this. And it's just such a, I mean, I'm interested to hear your perspective on the spirituality of what's going on. How you know? What do you think is going on? It, it uh, you know in this esoteric kind of place where you can't really put it in a box like the medical establishment wants. What is your feeling? Because it just seems. I mean, hearing this story. I mean, I've, obviously I obviously have a spiritual show and a personal growth show, so I I understand a lot of the concepts that you're talking about. But for many people like your your colleagues maybe in in the medical establishment have a lot of trouble dealing with this over the years did you did how have you processed this, and what are your thoughts on the spirituality of this because it just seems you know is it something I can't believe it would be something that's io like it in our mind that everyone is programmed with this exit strategy of having dreams and visions that make us feel better as we're dying there has to be something bigger than that in my opinion what's yours
1: yeah yeah I, I mean first of all it's it's unique to our human experience not our culture so some of the interesting work i've been um talking a lot with a three-time emmy award-winning producer who was working with the indigenous people of the outback in yeah. Yeah. and um she called me and she goes you know I, somebody gave me your book and you know everything you're talking about they have language for so it's unique to our human experience uh, listen, I, I, I'm kind of a good messenger on this because I have a general aversion to these sorts of things, right? Like I I, I don't gravitate to it at all. A couple of things are really, really important. We didn't come at this at all um, from any other angle than to translate what the patients were saying to us. So dying is a keyhole, right? And you can look through it and project on paranormal, afterlife, religious sure. We didn't interpret. We just, kind of um deliberately translated it. um i'm also a, i have a phd in neurobiology so i'm very I, I understand neurobiology well and where i'm at is i don't care whether there's a center in the brain that or, releases these visions and dreams yeah, you know whatever <laughs> you know how can that uh, even
0: make sense like how does well that- you know it's 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 like show me love right exactly where show me in the brain where love is what is where's it
1: and i think that whole need to make this concrete organic and quantifiable measurable is Mm -hmm. is insane (laughs) really misses the point which is that there are things that we should just have reverence for and and admit and admit we don't understand you understanding etiology source um, what the next, is, is absolutely irrelevant and really obscures the meaning. It is what it is. Uh, and where I'm at in question is what has, has this done to me is it's left me with a clear understanding that there's a better story um, That dying is really a closing of a life, not about broken pieces of you and we are more than the sum total of our exit and um the story is a better one and 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 what it leaves me wondering is you know the things you think are gone are they gone because they're tangible to us you know when you see somebody who's in their ninth decade of life and they lost a parent when they were a child and that parent Um, comes to them and they can hear the voice or smell the perfume that's 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 proximate to who they are still their essence is there for them and it um it makes you feel uh, oddly hopeful um certainly you should be respectful that you don't know all that's going on and um and again i just think it goes back to reverence
0: I think you you're coming at it from a humble place where you just go look I I just don't understand everything in the world and how the world works and I'm just going to just some things are what they are and you should have just reverence like you and I both don't understand the inner workings maybe you have a better understanding of that. the inner workings of the sun and 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 the life and the energy that it gives the, our our planet but we have reverence for what it does for us every single day without it we would all perish
1: yeah, and and I'm not sure we're meant to. to I think there's value in not knowing, um, because <laughs> what what you see patients go through is this um, journey of discovery. Interesting. Um, you know, they're they're at the end of their life, and they're rediscovering um, who they were and who they loved. And I think if that came with an owner's manual, it would kind of miss the point. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I I don't you know I um yeah and i just think it's more hopeful and you know you touched on a really important idea you asked you know are they experiencing evil you know and living in that sphere and honestly they're not and it 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 gives you this odd faith um that something else that's better prevails even to people who may have been themselves evil like it's you know there's and there seems to be this final justice Mm. um that, that that you know you, 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 you don't get harmed somehow. And I don't think these are inconsistent with the tenets of faith, of love and forgiveness, not the symbolisms of faith, but the the tenets of belief. So, yeah,
0: well, and I want to ask you another question because this is the slightly controversial question in regards to near death not near death um end of life, which is the prolonging of life through technology, through um the meta you know through you know you know plugging you know the, pulling the plug in, in question in your studies did you um ever study somebody who had made maybe made the choice prior to prolong their life artificially and did that change anything in regards to your studies
1: no, I, I can't say. And and I, you know, I guess there's an inherent bias in our work as they're in our hospice program. So they've already, you know, they've acknowledged they're, their mind. Yeah. Um, I've certainly seen people who were fearful of death, horribly fearful of death, um, throughout life and traumatized by the idea. Um, you know, and, and, and they get to a better place. Um, but I don't see, I haven't seen that
0: now do you um how did you get these people to sign on to this process that's (laughs) that's the coolest part of the story
1: it's unbelievable it's 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 the story within the story so originally went to the university and they said no you can't do this to people because we sterilize dying right Mm -hmm. we put them on a shelf and we make sure it's quiet and you know it, it some are the worst thing you can do. Some of the best deaths I've seen are when they're having a birthday party because um they don't want to be disconnected from what made them, them right? So some people are more comfortable with the, uh, you know, if they're a kitchen family and everybody's around, that they, they, they people like to be reminded that they're more than sick. And um so there's that. And we finally got them to approve. What's fascinating is there was nobody who we approached and I talk about this in my book, who didn't say yes. And what was shocking really? was um, the number of them, the, the vast majority who agreed to be filmed. Because if you think of how you appear as, and there are a couple of takeaways. One is that the people want, even though there's no secondary gain, so they're not going to be around to get the attention. There's no dividend for participation. What it tells you is they first, they want to connect. They have something to say. They want to matter. Um, th- they want to be heard. And they again, they don't stop living because they're actively dying. Um, their voices are there. And um, you know I, it's it's this idea of of putting a bubble around them and sterilizing them and removing them from um, uh, uh, what it means to be human is completely absurd. Um, so I I just was uh, there's only this is interesting in the book there was only one person who didn't use whose name isn't the real name. Everybody wanted, yeah, go ahead, and they were airing really the real stuff of having lived right, um, because that's part part of their stories was we were introducing them as people. The exception was a person. Who turns out wasn't abused by a family member and the children didn't want that out there because there were other family there was an an aunt a relative of the the abuser and they weren't trying to protect her she comes in and says you know you probably shouldn't use because i want to protect his children so they were both they were both (laughs) they're both holding a secret not knowing that the other side knew so that's the only person Whose um, whose name isn't real in the entire book? They who they were, and I can't believe the number of people we have who've just filmed. We'll be right back
0: after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Really? Oh yeah, well, days before death. Yeah. So in all of these years that you've been doing this are, are there any stories or any lives that really stand out to you that, that 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 the the experience of their end of life just sticks to you in a way that oh, others
1: yeah yeah, yeah. The, 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 the the most moving ones for me um, were the ones who had what what i for me is unimaginable loss um, you know loss of a baby know uh, a a wound from which you don't recover from and um you know you're caring for somebody like that at the end of their life and you you can treat things but you can't treat that's those spiritual wounds and you know i i I talk about this in the book and, 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 and this is this is the case that actually got me really motivated was we had a woman who was sharing all these experiences she was having at the end of her life with her children her children were really interesting all very artistic all very open-minded and then she starts holding a baby and who she called danny and none of the four kids understood the reference and she's cooing the baby and talking to and kissing it and the next day her sister came in from out of state and the children relay the story and the sister says well actually that's her first baby who she lost and the pain was so deep she could never really talk about it in life yet here it is full circle and she's at the end of her life um and she's again kind of put back together with with the, with the presence of her child um and again it just felt just um and uh and fair that you know and we see this they've lived their lives and they have these wounds and before they leave us, they're, they're given some kind of peace.
0: It's about, it's about cleaning up the business of life. Yeah. In in many ways. It's like just closing all the chapters that are open. All the books are open, different things. And just kind of like, okay, it's like, you've, you've, you've packed away everything. Everything is good. Everything's clean. Now it's time you you're good. You can, you can move forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the, for the family it just completely redefines death right it, it goes from being something empty and without uh any redeeming value to well it doesn't feel like nothing's in this mom is okay in there because we all worry when you see someone in a bed what, what are they actually experiencing and we've done studies on the bereavement and and people who witness this um it has enormous measurable benefits to grief and grief processing which just makes sense
0: so with all the with all the research you've done over the years, how does the end-of-life experience, especially the the ones that you've documented, how do the families benefit from seeing this? Or do they benefit? How do they react? How does it move forward? Because you're like you said, you you go on with them for the next 13 months trying to help them along with the process. How is you know those experiences uh, watching the video, the, you know, the filming of it. I'm not sure. I'm assuming they don't, if they see it or they don't see it, but how does that whole experience that they've gone through that you've studied help the family? If it, yeah. At all? I mean, we
1: studied, we surveyed and interviewed a uh, combined 750 brief family members. And, and, and the, the best way to say it is what's good for the patient is good for the family. Really? So it redefines loss from something empty and final to something that, that, again, is more life-affirming. Um, when we measure the process of grieving, they're able to remember and recall better. They're less harmed by... So dying isn't seen as horror and, and, and suffering. It's seen uh, in another context, or at least there's another dimension to it. Um, and that's often the thing they recall. They'll go back to that in their remembrance frequently. Um, so yeah and again that's quantifiable
0: um there's a term called terminal lucidity can you explain what that is yeah terminal lucidity lucidity thank you sorry
1: yeah it's fascinating it's very real and i you know it's being studied by the nih etc now and and basically it's people um, the best example is somebody who's demented who may not have remembered their family members names for years and and they're very, see, they're on a dying trajectory and they're very quiet and sleepy and can maybe confused, and then they go through this period where they're more wakeful, engaged, alert, and they're able to access memories that they didn't otherwise have access to, so they'll often use that daughter's name. And it's fascinating, we see this with music. For example, so you can take somebody who's nonverbal who was in the army, and you play that old dun 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 dun, and then all of a sudden they can speak. You know, so we retrieve what you remember. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, a song will come on from when you grew up, maybe in the '80s or whatever the '70s, mm-hmm. and it'll kindle oh, yeah. all, all of these. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember being, you know, in the field and partying that night, whatever. Same idea.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, So something happens that um, triggers recall in a way that they haven't had. And, you know, one theory I have is that these inner experiences they're having, if they're going backwards and they're remembering things in a different time, it resets the tone of the context and it sparks memory. Um, because there's something to it. Um, terminal lucidity is fascinating.
0: So so there's moments where, you know, if they've been, let's say, they had dementia, uh, and at the end of their life, there's a moment when they're, like, able to recognize yes. people in the room, yeah. have conversations about things, where maybe it'd been years since something like that happened. Yeah. That's fascinating because... From my understanding of of these, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, it's a they they, they, the brain is degrading. It's literally the the connections are, yeah, it's progressive
1: neurodegeneration. Right. So then there is. But
0: imagine imagine a circuit board,
1: and you got a light bulb over here, and there's one wire that we typically use to fire up the light bulb, but there's all these other pathways. Um, and again, there's a music pathway. So you play the right old tune and that triggers the memory or the light bulb. You know, it might be um, you're having a dream and that triggers uh, a memory or uh, a light bulb to fire. So something happens in the dying process that um, resparks sparks unaccess- previously unaccessible memory. Um, so it's not that the memory vanishes so much, is that our access access to it changes.
0: Right. In other words, the filing cabinet's still there, but we just forgot where it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or we find it in a different drawer. Exactly. The, the information, it doesn't go away. It's the yeah. pathways to the, the, the doors, the rooms, whatever you analogy you want to use yeah. to get to that information. Uh, now, Chris, I have to ask you after all of these years, do you fear death anymore?
1: Oh yeah. Just as much as the next guy um
0: but you have a a different perspective on it though
1: i mean oh i i i'm i fear death um it's not less personally Mm. more because when i think of death i think of the people who depend on me and not being here so um i guess there's two ways to answer the question personally less fearful that's Uh, what yeah um in actuality, very fearful because I can't be separated from my responsibilities. And so, you know, yeah.
0: That makes, that I as a, as a, as a father, I understand what you're talking about now. Yeah. Do I yeah. fear the
1: process of dying as much? No.
0: Right. But you fear of like, oh God, if I'm gone, what's going to happen to my family? How are they going to continue all these responsibilities that you have? Because it's not your time yet, sir. <laughs> you've got, you've got... We, it's, it's, you know, it's, we got work to do here, sir.
1: Yeah,
0: I hope. <laughs> we all hope and pray, right? Like they say, everybody wants to go to heaven, but just not right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now tell me about the work that you're doing at the Hospice Palliative Care of Buffalo. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: Um, well, I'm the CEO here, but I'm also a doctor and we do a lot of research. And um, so one of the areas we research is, is, is this area. Um, we actually publish and study a lot of things, but this is the one that's gotten so much attention. And the area we're looking at now is the question you asked about is what do these experiences do in changing people's existential uh, position or views? What, you know, how does it change how they view about,
0: Dying, hopeful, fearful, what have you. Uh, What has there been in your research? Has religion played a part in any of this? Does that, I mean, this doesn't sound like it doesn't sound very,
1: very rarely. And, you know, we wrestled with this. Other people have found this. So people who did kind of survey work on this in India and in the United States, I believe it was in the 60s and 70s, found the same thing. And Um, there's a wonderful person named terry egan who wrote a piece that ended up on cnn the wire she's a hospice chaplain and um and and she's you know the title was what people talk about when they're dying Mm -hmm. and they talk about life they don't talk about um the symbolic or the structural pieces of life um but the her argument is this is entirely consistent with faith so they talk about love they talk about forgiveness those are the things that actually matter from from our beliefs um so they're not
0: incongruent interesting very interesting
1: report you know we said some lines where said you know we first our first and last classroom um is our family and that's where we learn uh so that's where we return to
0: Without question. Now, where can people find out more about you, the work that you're doing, and you're, and where they can get your book? Sure. My book's
1: um, online. It's published by Penguin. It's called Death is But a Dream. Um, it's in 10 languages now. Wow. Um, there's a website uh, called Um D-R-Christopher's with a C, K-E-R-R. And um, I encourage people to go there because you can access patient videos or they're on YouTube. If you look under Hospice Buffalo. And
0: um, and I'll ask you three questions I ask all of my guests. What is your definition of living a good life? Oh,
1: um, for me, it's to find some earthly use, um, if, if to find purpose. Uh, I think that's how you become actualized.
0: What is your mission in this life?
1: So if, to find a purpose for which I'm suited. Um, I, I believe strongly that um, if you're going to work, well, for working hard, but it better be something you can get behind passionately.
0: And what is the ultimate purpose of life? To love. Chris, it has been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for for coming on the show and, uh, and sharing your your research and your studies over the years, and and thank you for doing the work that you are doing. I mean, you are, as they say, doing God's work in many, many ways. You are helping people along the path. Uh, I know you just document that you know a lot of people. Oh, he's documenting, I'm like yeah, but just I love the idea that you say like that people want to be heard, they want to be seen, they want to they want to matter, and you are giving them that gift at the end of life. Through your research. So I appreciate you, my friend.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate having me on.
0: I want to thank Dr. Kerr for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get his book, Death is But a Dream, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 112.